Bart, how's it going today? Pete, I'm glad to be in here today. It's uh, because it's, it's been a rough day. People are picking on me a little bit today, and I'm glad to have the comfort, you know, a, a safe place to land here. Well, you obviously don't realize that I'm going to be the next one to pick on you. <laughs> well, as Norm Peterson from Cheers said, it's a dog-eat-dog world, and I'm wearing milk-bone underwear, and that's that's kind of the way I feel today. It's, I don't want to touch that one. Yeah. You dropped it. I'm not picking it up. Uh, so, yeah, great guest on the show today. Oh, yeah. So excited. You know, uh, Pete Sharon's a character, and uh, we have him in, in, back in the practice with us. He was here for a while and uh, went and tried something else and came back home, and uh, we're, we're thrilled to have him back. So it's good to have him in the studio with us today. Yeah, I've known Pete for a while since uh, my, my time when I was in Florida, and he was always a good guy, and it was great when he was here the first time, and it's and it great that he's come back again. And, I mean, he's done some really good things and um, very knowledgeable, uh, very practical, and uh, you know, great, uh, great rapport with his clients. Yeah, you can make complex uh, concepts very easy to understand, and that's what he's going to talk to us about the show today as well about um, barren mares, um, sort of finishing the season not pregnant, and how do we get them set up for success for the following spring? Perfect timing's right. Yeah, absolutely, timing's right. So um, he will be on coming up just right now. So let's bring him in on stall side this week. We've got uh, Dr. Peter Sheeran from Rudin Riddle Theragenology Department. He's going to talk about barren mares, both at the end of the season and how do we get these set up for success the following spring. Dr. Sheeran, welcome to stall side. Thank you. Pete, thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. That's good yeah. to have you. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Pete, tell us a bit about yourself. So, um, I was raised in New York City, and now I work with horses. So, how did I get from there to there is uh, a long trip. When uh, I was in middle school, we moved upstate, and I ended up with a job on a, a breeding farm. And I guess that's what lit the little light bulb that maybe I want to do some horse work, and uh, reproduction is probably the way to go. Uh, I graduated from Syracuse with a degree in biology. Uh, didn't have any of the animal science courses that I needed for vet school, so I headed south. Uh, I ended up managing a thoroughbred farm in Ocala for a little bit and then went back to to school at the University of Florida, got another BS to get my animal science classes in. Uh, played in South Florida for a little while when yacht maintenance and repair. Then I um, moved back to Gainesville and started on a master's in equine reproductive physiology with Dan Sharp and um, applied to vet school, figuring I wouldn't get in on my first application and I could finish up the master's and then go from there and somebody, the vet school screwed up and they let me in. So I never finished my master's, but I got in and graduated in 94, uh, worked in Florida for a few years in a mixed animal practice, uh, then moved to, to Pennsylvania, worked with John Hurchin in a repro practice and then decided that although John was a, a brilliant man and I could learn a lot from him, most of uh, the education was done from about 11 p.m. to about 2 or 3 a.m. And, um, you know, then <laughs> then the day would start again at 7, and we'd keep working around. So I knew that that wasn't a, um, a long-term thing. So I went back to Florida and uh, did my residency in Therio there and uh, got boarded in 2001. And when I finished the, the boards, I went back to Pennsylvania and worked uh, with Dr. Hurchin again. And then um, – Dr. LeBlanc was here, and they were looking for another theogenologist, and she put my name in the hat, and I got a phone call from Dr. Riddle completely out of the blue, and came down and interviewed, met everybody here, and 
came here and worked there for 10 years. And then um, Dr. Hirschen passed away. He had a heart attack delivering a foal. And um, I figured it was time to try something a little bit different and went and bought the practice. And I was a solo practitioner for 10 years. We had an ambulatory practice and a farm where we fold out mares and had a recipient herd and stood stallions. And so did a little bit of everything. And then um, after about 10 years, I realized all I was doing was working and it probably was not a, a good lifestyle. I fell asleep driving, hit another car. Luckily, nobody was injured. Mm. And that was like the wake up call that it's time to do something else. And um, it worked out that you guys were looking for somebody and I was looking for a job. We got it figured out and I'm here. There's less stress in my life. There's a huge support staff. So I'm happy to be back. And I think some of my clients are happy to have me back. Well, it's, it's good to have you back. And we've, yeah. you always had a spot here. So yeah, that, that's I, great. Glad you're here. So that's fascinating, uh, Pete. We've, tell me about the yacht maintenance. So a friend of mine from undergrad of Florida, um, he graduated the year before I did and went down and he had been in the, um, in the business for a while and he had a, um, a charter company. So they chartered out sailboats and, and, um, motorboats and things like that. And so I went down and, um, there's a need for people to do repairs on boats. And so it was good money and I had fun time, went to the Bahamas a bunch. Um, wow. yeah. The downside was that I was exposed to a lot of toxic chemicals uh, during the day, mm. you know, the stuff we're using with. And then I, probably consumed a little bit too much alcohol in the evening and realized that that's, you know, I can only do that for so long. The money was nice, but it wasn't a good lifestyle for me. So that's why I ended up going yeah. back to did, did you have the mustache then too? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the mustache has been around a long time, huh? Yeah. At least 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mustache is as old as I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll know who to actually fix the, um, the, uh, sort of Baba family cruise line. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. the Rudin Riddle yacht. Yeah. The yacht. <laughs> yeah. Our, exactly. Repairman. Hey, so I've got a question. It seems like you were into the reproduction long before you, uh, as, as early as you started into the horses. What's the fascination there? I think it's just it's just cool, you know, the thing that we, we get to do is help Mother Nature and then we get to see the end product, right? And and then we can follow that end product. You know, it's like the, the sale going on now at the at Phasic Tipton, the standard bread sale. So we were there last night for the yearling sale and um, my wife and one of my daughters was with me and we were going through the catalog and it's like, well, we helped make that one. We helped make that one. Yeah. I know that mare. And it was, I mean, it's really cool. And then um, the... The fun part for me is when we have the clients there and we're doing our, that first scan and looking for the black dot and how excited these people get about just seeing that baby. Mm -hmm. And it's still cool for me. You know, we do late, a later pregnancy exam and you're, you're scanning the fetus and there's the heartbeat and there's the eye and here's the intestines yeah. and, you know, all those things. It's just, it's still cool after yeah. 30 something years. I do the, some of the fetal sexing, you know, in the, those 65 day pregnancies i get lost sometimes just just looking at them it's it's incredible yeah the, the detail that you can already see yeah. this is like you know it's going to be it's going to be a real horse and that's a great place to lead into what you want to talk about today in that you're talking about pregnancies that are already there back us up a little bit and talk about the mares that are having problem getting to that point so we're going to talk a little bit about barren mare management and i think you know the barren mare there's two times to look at them one is at the end of the breeding season when you've tried all season and and they're not pregnant and then the next thing the next 
window to look at is the beginning of the breeding season when you're trying to get those mares ready to get them bred. So um, with the, the barren mare at the end of the breeding season, uh, you have to figure out why the mare is not pregnant, obviously. Uh, the thing that we, we run into with uh, a fair amount seems that, you know, the breeding season ends and everybody's like, thank God this is over because it's just been this long haul from January to July and we're done with it. And now it's time to start prepping yearlings for the sale and, you know, worrying about all those other things, fixing the things on the farm and whatnot. And the, those barren mares get put to the side. But I think you need to look at them right at the end of the breeding season. So while those issues that were there are still visible, you can figure out what's going on. So the the first thing I think you got to look at is, is it the mare's fault? You know, yes, we're working on the mare, but it takes two to tango in this instance. And so uh, you need to look at the fertility of the stallions and and, and try to figure out uh, if that might be part of your issue. And um, if it is, you're going to go down a different path than you would be if you're being breeding to a fertile stallion. So if you've uh, eliminated the stallion as a the problem, then you have to look at the mare. And the, the basic things that we do would be obviously to ultrasound the mare and see what's going on in her ovaries and her uterus. Is, it, is everything of normal size? Is, is it appear normal? Is there fluid in there that should be in that shouldn't be in there? Um, things like that. Then we'll look at the perineal confirmation. So pick up her tail and and make sure that everything is as it should be. And if it's not, you know, try to correct it. Perhaps the mare needs a caslix and she's aspirating air and, and that's inflammatory and that could cause you a problem. Um, specking the mare, so doing a vaginal speculum exam, just taking a look at the cervix and the, and the vagina, see if she's pulling any urine, which is not something that you would typically pick up in, a, in your normal exams when you're in the middle of the breeding season. Um, that can cause issues. And then the... Um, what you see can give you an idea. You know, is there damage to the cervix? Is there, is there inflammation? Is the the mucosa a different color than it should be? So is it red rather than pink or pale, depending on where she is in her cycle? Is the cervix off the floor as it should be when she's out of heat, or you know, can you see some scar tissue there? Things like that. And then um, the next thing we would do would be to culture the mare. And you know, as you guys know, there's several different types of cultures. There's the the guarded swab culture, which is what we typically use um, during the the normal breeding season, if you will, in a normal mare to to get a culture. Um, but there's also with the small volume lavage, where we'll insert a catheter into the cervix and and fill the uterus with fluid, massage the uterus, and recover that fluid. And that's a more sensitive way to to culture the mare because that fluid covers the entire uterus. With the swab culture, you're just getting a, a sample of a small area. And in a mare that has a widespread problem, you know, a widespread infection, well, the swab will pick that up easier. But in some mares, there's uh, issues with where the infection is located. They may have a, what we call a biofilm, a layer covering the um, the bacteria so they don't show up on a swab, or it may be a, a, a localized infection in, in the tip of a horn or the base of a horn where the swab's not going to reach. So the, the small volume of vage will help cover that and and we'll get a sample of the entire uterus. So it's, it's more um, of a sensitive sampling issue. The downside of the, the small volume lavage is that the, um, there's a potential for contamination. And so we have to sort out what we get as our results. So in addition to doing a culture, every time we do a culture, we do a cytology as well. 
So the culture is going to tell us if there's an infection, but the cytology is going to look at the other cells that are there and let us know, you know, is there inflammation? Because infection and inflammation are not the same thing. If there are neutrophils, which would be a sign of inflammation, but no bacteria, that still is going to tell me that there's something not right there. There's something in there that's irritating the uterus and causing that inflammation. And so then we'll have to back up and take a look and try to figure out what's causing that inflammation. And then once we've done that, the next step we would potentially doing a problem there would be a uterine biopsy. And so we'll take the, the biopsy rod through the cervix and, and obtain a piece of the tissue of the endometrium and uh, send that off to the lab and get it prepared. And then we get them back and we, we look at, we re read our own biopsies here. So the theory genealogists will all look at the um, sample under the microscope and we're looking for inflammation and scar tissue. Um, are there enough glands there? Is there uh, a layer of mucus covering the, the endometrium that could be potentially causing problems. Um, there's a lot of people that, for whatever reason, aren't big fans of, of the uterine biopsy because they don't think it's going to give them much information, not enough bang for the buck. But I would say that um, in a problem error, it's probably going to give you more bang for the buck than some of the other diagnostics that we do in that we're looking at at the tissue where an embryo is going to reside. So if there's scar tissue, that's not going to show up in any of the other tests we do. And so if we see that, we can give um, a prognostication as to the potential for the mare to carry a fold to term based on the, the things that we see on the biopsy and the different pathologies. Um, and then finally, if if things... We've tried a lot of things with this mare through the breeding season. Then we may um, perform an endoscopic exam of the, of the uterus. So we'll go in there and actually look and see what's going on. There's, there's a lot of things, again, that don't show up on our regular exams that we'll see with the, the endoscope. So there'll be uh, plaques of, of bacteria that are present or plaques of fungus or scar tissue. Um, there's mares that we've looked at that have had marbles in them to keep them out of heat and the, the marble marble just falls apart. And so there's shards of glass in the uterus. Well, that mare's never going to get pregnant because you can't pick all those pieces of glass out. Or a mare that's had a dystocia and there's scar tissue in there or, or adhesions. So the, the uterus is scarred together and um, that's a nice place for a bacteria to grow. And again, you know, you wouldn't pick that up with a swab culture, but a small volume of lavage, you can get the fluid up in there and you'll be able to see that. And so that additional information is going to help us give the client an idea of, of the chances of getting the mare to foal. You know, getting them pregnant is one thing, but it's the likelihood of obtaining a foal is, is what we're shooting at. So all these diagnostics that we do are to try to give the client an idea of, of what are our chances of getting a foal at the end of this. And what are the, some of the things that we need to do in order to um, be able to get to that point? Talking about the the biopsy, uh, just backing up a little bit, you're saying some people don't think they get very much information for this. Um, when you actually look at these biopsies, you grade them. Um, can you explain the various grades? Because if a client says, hey, my mare's got this grade of biopsy, what does that mean and what's her chances of carrying a, a folded term? So it's, it's graded from one to three, and it's one – 2A, 2B, and 3. One is good, 3 is bad. Um, uh, a mare with a grade 3 biopsy has less than 10% of chance of carrying a fold of term. A mare with a grade 1 biopsy has greater than 80% chance of carrying a fold to term. 
and then the two A is a little bit better than the two B is a little bit worse than than the three. But the thing to be aware of is is not so much what the grade is, but what's causing the mayor to have that grade. So you could have a mayor that has fairly normal tissue, but tons of inflammation. And um, that could be a 2B just because of the amount of inflammation that we see. Um, But you could also have a mare that has a fair amount of fibrosis or scarring um, around the glands. uh, And she could also be a 2B. Well, you can fix inflammation Mm -hmm. if you figure out what the cause of it is. And so that you could take that mare from a 2B to a 2A, potentially a 1, whereas a mare that has a 2B due to the scar tissue, you can't get rid of the scar tissue. So she's always going to be a 2B, and she'll always have a poor chance of carrying a foal to term. You've uh, got all these diagnostics done. Um, This is the end of the breeding season. With the uh, arm with this information, how do you approach these mares? What do you do to actually get them set up for the next year? So if... If there's an ongoing problem, if there's an infection, we're going to treat that. If there's uh, a defect to the cervix, we'll discuss potentially having it surgically repaired. Uh, if the perineal conformation isn't what it should be and she needs a caslix, we'll put a caslix in. So our goal is after the, the examination and the diagnostics that we do to have the mare as perfect as possible when we put her away for the winter. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully we've achieved that, then we look at the the other end at the beginning of the breeding season and what we need to do to get her ready for the um, the upcoming breeding season and, and hopefully getting her pregnant. So, so what do you do with those mares, though, that you, you've gone through all this? Everything looks pretty normal. Um, we bred her to a fertile stallion last year, just she didn't get in full. Where do we go now? So if we've done all the diagnostics and everything is normal, the the one thing that we really have no way of testing if it's a problem is the oviducts. Okay. And so um, problems with the oviducts is a diagnosis by exclusion, which means you cross everything else off the list that it could potentially be, and then maybe it's the oviducts. And if we get to that point, then there's, there's several ways that we can treat the oviducts in the hope to um, eliminate any potential blockages that are there. The the one way would be to um, infuse mesoprostol, prostaglandin, through a, a catheter, the same catheter we use for deep horn inseminations in mares, and we take that right to the tip of the to the uterus, right at the oviduct, and deposit the prostaglandin on that, and it causes contractions of the the oviduct and theoretically pushes that stuff out. So we'll put it on both overducts. The other thing that we can do is called hydrotubation. So we'll put the endoscope in the mare and then pass a tube through the endoscope and we feed it into the the uterine papilla, which is the, the ending of the overduct into the to the uterus and then flush it out. Um, is one better than the other? I think it depends on the mare. And so um, in a majority of cases, what we will probably try first is, is the mesoprostol. Um, it's relatively easy to do and a little bit less expensive than, than the endoscope. The other thing that we would we could potentially do, though, is if we have the mare in and we're doing the workup for her and the referring veterinarian has done a lot of this stuff 
through the breeding season than maybe when we scope or we flush her over ducks at the same time. Yeah. You know, while she's in the shop kind of mm -hmm. thing, take care of that. And I know that used to get poo-pooed quite a bit that, you know, that people say they really don't get their overducks blocked, but it's very real because we've had a number of mares that nothing else is working on. Mm -hmm. You, you flush them and gosh, they get in full yep. bang just like that. So it's, it's a very real thing. Are they, are, do we have any, is there any way to tell how many mares that are out there that are unilaterally blocked versus the ones that we have problems with the ones that are bilaterally blocked? Is there... No way to diagnose that, right? Well, the one potential way to, to diagnose if there's a problem with just one overduct would be to follow the mare and see if she gets pregnant when she ovulates over off of one side versus the other oh, side. The other, yep. You know, that'd be that'd be about the only way to to rule it out. I mean, there's some tests that you can do. You can um, you can squirt dye or, or colored beads on the the ovaries, and when she ovulates, then um, flush her uterus and see, you know, you put one color on one side with another color on the other side and then flush her uterus and see if you recover, you know, do you recover beads and do you recover one color or both colors? Um, the issue with that is, um, cost versus benefit kind of thing. Right. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's not a, a benign procedure and it's not a simple procedure. Um, and you just as well do one of the other procedures. And, yeah, yeah. And boom, you're done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because if you do the dye and then you find out she's blocked, then you got to flush her over ducks anyhow. So skip that step and, and maybe take a little risk out of it. So you've uh, put this away, a mare away for the winter and she's in good shape. You've addressed the inflammation or the infection, which is really the thing. Um, scar tissue, maybe you can talk a little bit about um, what can be done about that, if anything, when you bring these mares back in towards the start of the next season. So you put her away as good as you could for the winter. Now you're going looking at that mare again. How do you get them ramped up for the breeding season? And how do you deal with uh, non-inflammatory issues in that uterus, if you can at all? So the the first things that we'll do is, is try to get the clients to put the mare under light. So starting the right after Thanksgiving, um, under lights until 11 p.m. So under lights means if she's in the barn, the light in the stall needs to be bright enough to read a newspaper with your back to the to the light source. Um, nowadays, we have the, um, the equilooms, which is a, um, a mask or uh, an attachment to the halter, if you will, that has a, a blue light on one side right by the eye so that the mare gets the, the light. So you can expose her to the light, but she can stay outside. So then you decrease your, your labor input and the costs of the bedding in the stall and things like that. The one thing to remember, though, is that um, to ease them into transition, it's not just a light thing. It's also a, a, a temperature thing. So if they're going to be outside with the, the mask on, you might consider putting them uh, a blanket on them, depending on the environment that you're in. You know, if you're in Florida versus New York, there's going to be a huge difference there. Um, and then the other thing would be nutrition. So you want the mare to be um, gaining in a in a positive plane of nutrition, rather than um, in a negative nutritional plane, to uh, to do that. And um, so we know that the lights take about sixty days to have their effect. So what we're doing with the lights is just is faking the mare out and telling her that the breeding season, you know, that the season has changed already. And we just, we advanced the breeding season. So in a, in a mare that was not under lights, that was in normal um, ambient conditions, 
they'll typically start to cycle in this area the end of March, beginning of April by themselves. So what we've done with the lice is we take the the breeding season because the breeding season is fixed in length, and we've picked it up and we've moved it. So they'll start cycling sooner, but they'll end they'll quit cycling sooner as well. Luckily, it it drags past the end of the breeding season, so we're we're okay from that point of view. Um, but if you're breeding a horse that's that's not of the ones that follow the typical breeding season, you know, that end July 1st or July 15th or whatever, then you have to worry about when you get to the to the end of July or into August, is the mare going to shut down on you kind of thing. So, excuse me, the, um, once we've had them under lights for about 60 days, then we'll take a look at them to see if they're cycling. And if they are, then at that point, we're going to culture them again to make sure that we did what we thought we did and that they're still clean or that they didn't pick anything up over over the um the winter. And then um again the um following them to see where they are in their cycles. So I personally like to let these barren mares go through one cycle on their own before I try to breed them so that I know she's had an ovulation versus, you know, with the big push for getting the mare's bred as early as possible, so you have the foals born as close to January 1st as possible. Lots of times we'll um, follow those mares, and she may not have ovulated, but we're going to get her bred because she's got a decent-sized follicle, the shed's open, that sort of thing. And, and um, I think with the barren mares, we know they've had a problem. We want everything to be as perfect as possible. So if um, this follicle that you're following is... It may be the first one they're going to ovulate that year, but they don't ovulate it as as precisely as they will for subsequent ones. So you may breed her with a 35 or a 40 millimeter follicle because she's in good heat. But instead of ovulating in two days, it's going to take her four days. So then you got to cover her again. So you're you're putting more semen into the uterus. So you're um, inflaming the uterus, aggravating the uterus, and, and that's a big giant step back for a barren mare. You know, for a maiden mare or a, a mare that um, wasn't pregnant because you she foaled late and you didn't breed her, that's a different situation than these barren mares that, that have problems. And we know that they have problems, so we want to minimize anything that we can um, minimize to prevent us from starting off with an issue. Because with the, these mares that have the issues, you only have a couple of shots at them. Mm-hmm. You know, if you start going three, four cycles, you're back to where you were the previous year, and it's going to be hard to to um, get a pregnancy. And then you were talking about the um, the biopsy. So what can we do for these, these mares that have excessive scar tissue? Unfortunately, there's not a lot you can do. You know, if, if it happens to be a non-thoroughbred, you can do embryo transfer. Um, and, you know, so then you're not worried about that, that uterus to raise a foal or to, to um, grow a fetus. You know, you just take it and put it in, into the rent mom um, So th- th- there's that option. But with the thoroughbreds, you know, if they've got a lot of scar tissue, the odds of carrying a foal to term are decreased. And then you just have to have that conversation with your client is to, you know, you're going to put some money into this or you're willing to take the risk. Because there's obviously there's no guarantee in, in reproduction, but um, you know, if she's got problems, your your chances are going to be lower and are they willing to, to give it a shot? Because, you know, about the only time you can say she's got no chance to get pregnant is if, is if her cervix is scarred completely mm-hmm. shut and you can't get semen in there. But if if she has, if she's a 2B and so she's got a, a 
a 30 to 20 to 30 percent chance of carrying a full to term. Well, there's a chance. And so then perhaps um, they're willing to try. You know, again, it depends on the clients and their pocketbook and, and how badly they want a, a foal out of that mare. How do they get to the point where they have this scar tissue? You know, you talked about infection and inflammation and potentially that can happen. Is there anything else that happens to these mares that cause a scar tissue or is this just a wear and tear and an age thing? Well, there's a multitude of, we, of potential causes. So, yeah, the wear and tear, um, uh, chronic inflammation. So we can see this scarring in, in older maiden mares. Um, you know, mares that have, you know, raced till they're five or six, the, um, the issue with those older maiden mares, biologically they're not old, but reproductively they are, is their cervix. So when a mare's in heat, their cervix is supposed to open up. It lets sperm get in, but it lets all the inflammatory products get out. And so the older maiden mares, things don't relax as they should. When the mare's in heat, she produces fluid. She's supposed to do that. And then with the cervix being relaxed, she can kick it out or the lymphatic system will help drain it. If the cervix doesn't open up and there's fluid, the fluid causes irritation. Irritation results in the production of more fluid and you just start this vicious cycle. And so you can have this older maiden mare that has not had anything put into her uterus other than the chronic issues of the fluid. So she's had just had chronic inflammation for years. That can cause scar tissue. Um, you know, uh, focal scar tissue, so in a, in a local spot, can be due to trauma from foaling. The other thing is um, things that are put into the uterus can cause scarring. So there's, there's, there's tons of things that you can put in the uterus. There's also things that you probably shouldn't put in the uterus. And um, a lot of those things are found out by trial and error. You know, um, either see the kinds of reactions that mares have to, to different treatments. Like, for example, um, Infusing a mare with genocin, so the antibiotic genocin is the antibiotic is pretty acidic and cause a pretty um, profound response to the mare. But what we do is we buffer it, so we add sodium bicarbonate to it to to raise the pH so that it's not as acidic and the uterus tolerates it better. Um, uh, Batril, another antibiotic, um, in the commercial form that's available, you know, the bottle that we would use to give the mare the antibiotic in the vein intravenously, the carrier in there is really inflammatory. So, you know, when you got your culture results back and your sensitivity and you said, oh, well, it's, you know, susceptible to enrofloxacin, so that's Batril. In the past, people have just infused the Batril and then found out the hard way that that probably was not a good thing to do. Um, you know, now we have the compounded form from from the pharmacy that that we can use intrauterine and, and doesn't have that carrier, so it's not as inflammatory. Um, you know, the the thing that the one treatment that's used frequently is probably not the right word, but but more um, than it had been in the past would be the kerosene, which is uh, it's good for uh, removing the biofilm. And in everybody's mind, it's like, holy cow, you're putting kerosene in there. That's that's got to be terrible. Um, I think it's probably a dose-related thing. So if you put a lot in there and leave it in there, it's going to cause problems. But there have been studies done that have looked at mares, take a biopsy, infuse them with the kerosene, come back 48, 72 hours later, repeat the biopsy, and um, there's either no change or the biopsy score has increased. It has gotten better, improved from that treatment. So 
Um, it's not always the things that we think that are going to be bad that'll cause problems. Sometimes things that we think that are fairly benign um, can end up causing problems. So um, you mentioned about um, lights, um, getting these mares ready. Um, is there like a, a golden period um, of day length? Is it better at the start of the, the the dark period? Is it better in the middle of the night? How how can that be done? I mean, you mentioned the mask, which are going to be handy for mares out in the paddock. But say you've got your mare in the barn, how would you go about creating your own lighting program? If you're lucky and you have timers on your lights, then you just want the lights to stay on from when the mares come into the barn mm-hmm. in the evening till 11 o'clock at night. Okay. Um, there's also a... a, a um, a treatment, if you will, that you can give them a flash of light for an hour or two in the middle of the night. But the timing for that is more critical in that you have to, as the day length changes, you have to change when that flash of light is. So it's, in my opinion, anyhow, easier just to, I leave the lights on till 11 o'clock. It covers my window. I'm good to go. Well, but it's important to note too, that they need that dark period too. Yes. So you don't. So the lights, the lights need to be added in the evening, but then they they need to go Maybe, off. They need that need dark, dark period to actually yeah. get them entrained. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, what's your uh, what's your short speech? Say somebody says, "Hey, Doctor Sharon, I have this mare. Couldn't get her pregnant last year. Um, looking to get her pregnant this year. What's your uh, what's your short speech to say? These are the things you should do, and the order you should do them in. So the first thing, obviously, get them under lights when they're cycling. Get a culture on them. Make sure you're going to breed the mare to a fertile stallion. Um, go let them have one ovulation so we know that they're cycling for sure. Um, breed them at the appropriate time. So with some of this, the thoroughbred horses, you know, it's going to be a challenge because the, their book sizes is so big. And, um, you know, the beginning of the year, everybody seems to want to get their mare bred the first week of the season. Um, I'm happy to wait till the second or third week of the season. Um, so we want to, we want to time that. Um, and then those mares are mares that need to be followed closely with palpation and ultrasound. Uh, they may need a post-breeding lavage. So the only way you're going to know if, if they're accumulating fluid is, is to look at them. So these mares may need to be checked every day or sometimes multiple times a day to um, ascertain that everything is as it should be. Um, the the one thing that I didn't talk about before is, is programming mares. So... Um, you can put them under a regime of progesterone and estradiol, daily injections for 11 days. You give them a dose of prostaglandin at the end, and they should be ready to be bred in 8 to 10 days. And I think that that's fine for maiden mares and mares that have not had problems, but I would try to stay away from it with problem mares because, again, you're, you're tweaking things a little bit and you're sort of playing with mother nature some. And I think if, if these, these mares, if we can have them cycle on their own and do everything on their own and, and come at it just at that right time, hopefully one time, then you're, you're going to be way ahead of the game. Yeah. And you've talked about a lot of manipulations that you're doing to these mares and that's going to cost money. But for me, it's not the cost of getting a mare pregnant. It's the cost of not having her pregnant. Right. And I think people don't really appreciate what it costs them to maintain that mare, to have bought the mare, and all the other health costs and management costs that are associated with having that mare. Oh, they appreciate it. Yeah. We hear all about it if they don't get pregnant. <laughs> right? don't get pregnant. <laughs> but again, on the other side, they've got to be prepared to invest in getting yep. that mare pregnant. Now, most mares, hey, they're great. It's a fertile animal, but the ones on the margin are the ones where people make their profit. 
So they've got to be prepared to actually spend money on the things you've talked about because the cost of having a not pregnant is greater. And yeah, I know you hear about it, but that's why you're there working your hardest to get them pregnant because you're there to make money for your yeah. client. Yeah. So you have to put that effort in that, that, that first cycle. Yep. And so, you know, maybe we're checking the mare more than they think that we should check the mare, but in the instances where problems flare up, we can nip them in the bud sooner rather than later and, and be ahead of the game. Yeah. Yeah. Pete, that's great. It's been a really good talk through your approach to problem mares at the end of the season and getting them ready for the next one. It's so glad you're back. I'm glad to be back. I it's, tell it's you what, it's, you. it's good to be here. Yeah. I know I'm happy being here. My wife's happy to be back in town. So it's, it's a good thing. And yeah. I mean, this is a great place to work. Obviously you guys Isn't know it? you've been here forever. Yeah, so best. Yeah, it was always strange, you know, when you were first here, I'd hear your voice on the overhead, and then there was this gap, and all of a sudden, you you were back on the overhead again, they were calling for you, and it says, where did 10 years go? I just stepped no through, kidding. That stepped through this portal in time, and all of a sudden, I'd gone to the future, and Pete was back. <laughs> so, it was good. So, that's our stall side for this week. We've been talking to Dr. Pete Sheeran of Rudin Riddle um, Theriogenology Service, talking about uh, problem mares, finishing up the season, and getting ready for the next one. See you next time. Stallside Podcast is brought to you by Rudin Riddle Veterinary Pharmacy. As partners in your animal's healthcare, we strive to bring you the highest quality medications, including custom compounds, that are formulated and produced right here in our pharmacy. Along with medications, we also strive to bring you high quality and relevant information, such as that available here on the podcast. So if you like what you hear and see, be sure to refer us to your friends, and remember to hit that like button and subscribe to our channel. We've done a lot of great episodes already that you may need to catch up on, with more just around the corner. One last reminder, nothing you here on the podcast should be construed as veterinary advice, which should only come from a veterinarian with whom you have a relationship.